Hi, I'm Andy Ellis. I'm the host of this show and a potential Green Party candidate for governor of Maryland in 2026. I'm using this show to highlight interesting people and ideas that help me and you to understand what is happening and what is possible. You can learn more about the campaign by going to gogreen2026.com. Guests on this show do not necessarily support my campaign or the Green Party. They've agreed to come on to discuss ideas and issues. And of course, click the subscribe button on YouTube so you can keep up to date with this podcast. Davon Love is a Baltimore-based political organizer and the Director of Public Policy for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, LBS. LBS is a grassroots think tank that advances the public policy interests of black people, and in 2010, Love co-founded LBS, who was one of many organizations that successfully pressured the state of Maryland to disband its plans to build a juvenile justice jail downtown Baltimore. LBS has also led legislative efforts and advocacy efforts regarding criminal justice reform, youth, and community empowerment. Davon is the author of Worse Than Trump, The American Plantation, a book that offers an important critique of the American political left and a political alternative to the exploitive relationship that black people have to white institutions. Davon is also the author of When Baltimore Awakes, which is a comprehensive critique of the way the white supremacy is embedded in the human social service sector in Baltimore. Hello and uh, welcome to the Go Green 2026 podcast uh, tonight. Uh, or in today's show, we're going to be talking about reparations, redistribution, and economic justice. The movement for reparations for African-descended people in the United States has a long history and has been a significant part of many Black and Pan-African political movements. It has also long been a point of division and fracture on the American left, because to many white, non-Black people of color, and some Black socialists and progressives, the idea of reparations disrupts an analysis that sees the problem in the U.S. primarily based on class difference and economic inequality. I'm a white green who roots my politics in racial justice. I've studied reparations for several decades, and I still often struggle to communicate a clear policy of reparations. I'm not alone. Reparations has been a part of the Green Party platform for several decades and is a key differentiator from the platforms of most other political parties. But even among Greens, socialists, and other leftists who embrace the concept of reparations, the historical and contemporary basis and the implementation is still often incoherent and difficult to imagine in policy terms. Today, this occurs against a backdrop in which socialist, universalist, and redistributionist ideas are increasingly part of the progressive mainstream, that is focused on economic justice as its core principle. The resurgence of this long-running debate in some ways is just a repeat of the many clashes on the issue in the past, but because of social media and the widespread availability of quality information, the debate has become more mainstreamed at this point. On tonight's show, we're going to ask Davon Love about the history of movement for reparations, the work to create policy mechanisms for reparations in Maryland, the confrontation with conservative, neoliberal, and progressive political forces that all in one way or another oppose these policies of repair and reinvestment. And then we're going to talk about what the future looks like and which repair is the focus of economic policy and Black people have sovereignty over their own institutions and communities. With that, let's get started. Hey, Davon, how you doing? Hey, I'm good. What's up, Andy? You know, not much. Uh, this is a conversation I know you and I have had over a lot over time, and I know that your thinking on it has evolved as we, as you've started to make policy around it. So I'm really looking forward to the chance to dive into this tonight. Yeah, likewise. Oh, 
Let's get started. One of the criticisms I often hear of analysis that is focused on white supremacy as a political system is that it lacks a critique of class and capitalism. Often this includes a reference to the black bourgeoisie juxtaposed to the white working class, etc. So let's set up this conversation with a broad question. What roles do class, capitalism, and economic justice play in your analysis and in your work? So I think, you know, it's a classic debate, um, you know, and I think most people in the context of the conversation that your question um, initiates is the kind of inextricable linkage between class and race. So I think most people will claim that that is the posture they take. I think the question is, what are the contours of the dynamics as to how they operationalize and how societies are organized, right? And so that analysis is based off of your point of reference or worldview. So one of the things that, you know, LBS would make very clear, we operate from a revolutionary pan-African nationalist perspective. And as it relates to our larger, our relationship to the modern world, that the modern world has been shaped by the, pro the past 500 years by the project of European domination of the world, colonization of land, colonization of territory, colonizations about colonization about information about the world. And so we talk about people of African descent. My analysis begins from the vantage point that people of African descent are prisoners of war, right? That the project of European colonization, chattel slavery, what we call the Maafa, was an assault on the humanity of people of African descent. And that the kind of social, the political, economic, and in some ways even existential basis for Western civilization is the fundamental dehumanization of people of African descent. In other words, many of the arenas marked as high levels of civilization, the there, there are ways in which the contributions of people of African descent have fundamentally had to be demonized, have fundamentally had to be, so the idea for instance of Egyptology, discipline that emerges from the European Renaissance that theorizes Egypt out of Africa because the, because the achievements of ancient Africa um, were so um, advanced that the project of chattel slavery would be made more difficult, right? The dehumanization that was needed for chattel slavery to, to move forward would have been more difficult if human characteristics as Europeans see it, that being intelligence, were attributable to people of African descent as a people. That analysis is an, is an important starting point because then when I think about capitalism, right, distribution of resources and, and imperialism and all these other forces of domination, I look at it through that lens. So when we think about the, so the question of reparations, right, um, and then emerging from the conversation around economic justice, the framework that we operate of, and to your initial question is, is that black people will not be able to practice freedom without the capacity and arrangements of institutions to be able to practice sovereignty. That the history of the past 500 years says is that whenever black folks have tried to make ourselves available to a larger multiracial coalition, and early American history is illustrative of that. That when we think about chattel slavery and the fight to end enslavement, it's important to know that white folks were in the minority in terms of fighting against enslavement. There certainly were white folks that were a part of that effort, but were in the minority. 
And I think W.E.B. Du Bois and Black Reconstruction, I think, says it best, that the end of chattel slavery was an opportunity for America to truly be this multiracial democracy that it, that it wanted to project itself to be. And the alliance between white labor and white capital against people of African descent demonstrates what I would argue is a fundamental inability for this, for the, the cultural machinery of whiteness to allow a truly class-based multiracial coalition that I think some folks would term it to be, to be possible. And additionally, Derek Bell's theory, you know, the kind of one of the founding theoreticians of critical race theory and his argument about the permanence of racism that, that in America, that America, racism is fundamental, white supremacy is fundamental to the American construct. So it's important for me to start from that analysis, because if I'm clear, and this doesn't mean that white people, individual white people don't have the capacity to be a part of justice movements, but that is to say that people of African descent as a people should not rely on the benevolence of or the capacity for white people to undo this larger cultural machine of white supremacy and the project of European domination as the basis for our freedom struggle, right? And so, our, so again, my, the, the revolutionary Pan-African nationalist worldview situates our thinking about our political um, operation from the vantage point of what allows us to be able to practice sovereignty so that the revolutionary part, we can be a part of a larger struggle against capitalism, against imperialism, against forces of oppression and domination. Gotcha. I think that makes sense. And I think that really lays out the the approach that you all that you and LBS take toward reparations as, as a as a concept. Um, and, and I think when we talk about reparations, the harm is often abstracted to sort of enslavement, Jim Crow and a whole bunch of stuff in between that was really bad. But it, it's not detailed and it's not talking about materiality a lot of times even even if it's about material things the concept is kind of abstracted uh, and i think it's that's important but i think it makes that um it makes it feel immaterial and philosophical so can you talk a little bit about the harm that has been done to black people in communities in maryland through white supremacist social and economic policy and disinvestment so i would say so i would start with one of the, the important things about maryland is on the eve of the Civil War, Maryland had the highest population of free um, Africans, um, folks that weren't enslaved, um, the highest population of said folks in the United States. And, and I think that's important because when we think about what it means for Black people to have power, practice power, I think there's an assumption that areas that have majority Black people, right, are necessarily prone to be able to practice more justice, right? And, I, and I'll talk more about that later, but in terms of your question, I think it's an important starting point because when we think about the tools that have been used um, to cause damage to people of African descent, given the analysis that I started with, we first have to start by the very fact that we're here, All right? So the very fact that people of African descent were brought here because one of the things that John Henry Clark once said is that if, if we start a history with enslavement, everything else looks like progress, right? There's, there's a conceptual frame that has to be um, adjusted in terms of what were the historiography we're socialized to have. And so, so the very fact that we're here, right, begins the injury, not begins 
the existence of people of African descent. And I think one of the ways the European imagination operates is that enslavement is almost the beginning where people of African descent enter history, right? So that's important to your question. So again, the, us, the, us being here, right, it begins that. Everything else then builds on that. Because people of African descent not being able to practice sovereignty, there were attempts by people of African descent to be able to practice that kind of sovereignty. I think many reparations advocates, they begin, I believe it was Field Order 15, General Sherman, 40 acres and a mule. But it's important for us to recognize that there were demands for reparations prior to the end of enslavement. So whether we're talking about Martin Delaney, right, and some of the folks that were looking at repatriation and compensation for that. So, so calls for reparations predate um, the United States recognizing the end of the, the, the you know, the problem of in chattel slavery and, and the end of the Civil War. Um, and so, again, in terms of the damage, in addition to um, us being here, in addition to um, the ways in which, so one of the things that happened in Baltimore, if we're talking about Baltimore and the state of Maryland, um, there is a history of black educational institutions, for example, that eventually, as we get to the end of the 19th century, um, were built up and there was an attempt to make them more formalized, right, as kind of the segregated black school system. There was an attempt during um, the middle 1860s for um, black schools and the taxes from black people to go to invest in those black schools. What happened that ultimately was thwarted by the legislature. So what ended up happening is even though black people were paying taxes, right, that public dollars were not being earmarked to these black schools, but earmarked to um, white schools. And in many ways, um, the advent of public education emerged from the end of the Civil War and the end of, ch of chattel slavery and its former iteration, right? So white folks benefited from the advocacy to, you know, advance the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, which, again, simultaneously emerged the advent of public education, which then, you know, many white folks, you know, benefit from and continue to benefit today. Those that study the inequitable, the inequitable distribution of resources to schools in majority white suburban areas versus those in highly urban, more majority people of African descent and people of color areas. Um, and so that's something that, for instance, in Baltimore, um, there's a history of resources not being allocated to us that have benefited folks for generations and generations. So that's one example. The other example I give, because this portion, you know, we could do, you know, hours on this part, but I'll give one other example. Um, and I think a lot of people um, have been talking about it more recently, um, is the piece around redlining. So Baltimore being one of the first cities to institute a, a segregation housing ordinance that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and so the importance of that is, is that many of the mechanisms um, by which the um, wealth generating activity, particularly the government supports for the establishment of the white middle class, Homestead Acts, GI Bill, right? So these are public subsidies essentially to um, individual white families that black people were excluded from. And you look at the policy, you know, folks, again, redlining where federal government has certain maps that disincentivize investment in um, loans in certain areas of predominantly black, incentivize housing um, loans for 
uh, mortgages in majority white neighborhoods. And so the kind of wealth accumulation activity, um, it was organized in such a way in Baltimore being in some ways um, central to the development of that problem that goes from Maryland and around the United States um, helps us then to explain why it is that the average white family has 16 times the wealth of a black family, for example. Right. So just so so people really understand the extent of the economic um, disparities between black folks and white folks. And all of that comes from the economic inertia from the couple of policies that I just mentioned and, and many, many others. Yeah. And I think I think that those two policies help to highlight the way in which black people are pay, paying taxes uh, and those resources are being diverted away and disinvested from black communities. And I think that sets up the the policy focus that I want to shift to pretty well. Um, and so I want to compare two pieces of legislation, the Maryland Fair Share Act and the Maryland Reparations Act. Both pieces of legislation increase taxes on wealthy folks as part of redistributive politics, but they have different definitions of wealth, different philosophies of and different philosophies of redistribution. I want to get to those differing philosophies in a bit, but I want to start with some policy comparison and analysis. Can you talk about what each bill does, how they're similar and how they're different? So the um, so the bill that the the Fair Share Act is that that's what it's called, right? Yeah. So um, LBS has partnered with and been in conversation with the Maryland Center of Economic Policy that essentially has kind of formed the analysis behind the Fair Share Act. The idea being that we need a more progressive tax code that Maryland, even though it sees itself as progressive, right, it, in, in many ways, it doesn't tax the wealthy to the extent that it makes sense. Um, and so there are a variety of tax policies that they put forward an attempt to again address some of the you know they've addressed some loopholes that corporations take advantage of um but also just a more equitable tax policy um in ways that would contribute to more public services right and so and on conversations that we've had with them um the question of where the resources go and they've talked about it going to things like um education system um you know Kerwin and whatnot which is you know a big the new the maryland blueprint um so, so that's kind of a quick summary. The legislation that LBS is working on, the Maryland Reparations Act, is an extension of some work we did around cannabis legalization, establishing a framework for reparations for the war on drugs. And so we use the, the kind of political inevitability of the legalization of recreational cannabis, focusing on the tax revenues to establish a community repair reinvestment fund. That fund, 35% of the tax revenues go to jurisdictions, um, go back to the communities impacted by the war on drugs. Each jurisdiction gets a percentage of those funds determined by that jurisdiction's contribution to cannabis possession charges from 2002 to 2023, giving jurisdictions more hardest hit and more of those resources. And then each jurisdiction has to pass a law determining how those resources are spent. That's important because instead of giving money directly to the executive, passing a law requires that local legislature, which provides the greatest possibility um, for the public to be involved in shaping how those resources distributed. I can more easily impact my local council person than I can the executive. So it creates the greatest possibility for folks to be involved in that. And so it was important for me to explain that part, to explain what our bill does, 
because we borrow heavily from the Fair Share Act in terms of its tax policies, which include changes to the income tax, the add two additional tax brackets um, above $250,000 a year, um, millionaire's tax, um, a, chain, a, a capital gain surcharge, um, a change to the estate tax. So these are policies where the resources from, from the revenues from those policies would go into the community repair and reinvestment fund. This for us is a reparations um, policy. Um, and so I would argue the difference is this, and I'm gonna use this, and I don't know if I'm getting ahead of you, but I'm, I'm gonna use this to talk about our perspective on economic redistribution, because I think that is the contrast. Mm -hmm. I think the progressive movement and leftists in general Wait, before you get there, let me yeah, okay. let me ask let me just be clear on the policy. So, um yeah. in 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 the in the Fair Share Act, it is progressive taxation in order to fund the general fund, uh, which can then basically be used for whatever the executive right. and whatever the governor wants uh, right. when they craft a budget. In right. yours, it is going to a special fund uh, that is earmarked and only able to be used for certain uh, for certain purposes. Is is that the 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 policy distinction for the most part that's right. okay all right okay go 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 ahead i i just wanted to make sure we're that was clear so yeah got it got it and so um the expansion of the of or the mainstreaming of progressive ideas over the past few years and we've seen the emergence of policy similar to the you know fair share act medicare for all fights around living wage baby bonds um, universal basic income, which generally we find to be good policy. The distinction is, is that, and this goes back to the analysis that I started with, that when we look at the way, one of the impacts of racism and white supremacy, both on the collective American consciousness and on how policy is shaped, is that black people are, investments in black people, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, understood primarily by providing services to black folks. And that frame is problematic for a variety of reasons. Two of the most relevant is, is that one, it, it um, frames black people primarily as patho pathological that need to be fixed, right? And so it creates this context where black people are, are a problem and that you have these institutions outside of our community that are tasked with fixing us. And again, they may not be explicit, but in many ways, it structures a dynamic that helps to kind of, um, that, that perpetuates that. So that's one reason. The other is that the, the importance of the, the, the question of, of self-determination and sovereignty. So when you deal with the, some of the interventions that I mentioned earlier, they deal with helping individual people, right? Be able to have a better standing in the society as it exists. Right, so so more access to the existing healthcare system, right? More access to you know social programs as they currently exist, and so one of the things that happens is is that people of African descent, as a people, right, thinking about the fact that the only way for us to practice freedom is to be able to have the institutional machinery to do such, to have the vehicles of community investment, such that we don't have to rely on entities outside of our community in order to get resources to our community where we can practice governance <clears throat> over the distribution of public resources and, and form the institutions that both not just provide services, but then can help us think about 
how do we operate as a people in this larger economy in a way that is not exploitive and, ex and extractive, but in a way that is generative, right? And allows us, for instance, to engage the healthcare system, right? That or the so-called healthcare system from a position of being able to be designers of the kinds of interventions that people of African descent need, as opposed to the subordination to many of the challenging aspects of the existing um, you know, medical system, as, as an example. But what we, what we don't have, people of African descent, what we don't have is we don't have those large scale institutional mechanisms or those vehicles to be able to make public investments in a way that we control, right? And so reparations, we argue that reparations emerges from the revolutionary Pan-African nationalist um, worldview, right? So whether, you know, I mentioned Martin Delaney, Kelly House, um, you know, Queen Mother Moore, Republic of New Africa, Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, you know, uh, Universal Negro Improvement Association, you know, these are the entities that have been the most ardent advocates for reparations that come out of this worldview. So reparations is about investing in black people from our perspective, given the political genealogy of the demand, that reparations is about investing in black people's capacity to practice sovereignty, as opposed to investment in black people's ability to integrate into the existing social order. And that distinction is one that I think for some people may be difficult to identify the line. But to your point, I think the contrast on these policies, I think, help to for people to identify that line because we want the resources to go into community repair and investment fund, because that is a place where investments in development of those practices of governance and community control. Right. And developing the, the, the vehicles so that other investments that come into the community have the kind of institutional machinery to go to for investments to actually get to the communities um, that folks say they intend the, the resources to go. Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I mean, I think <clears throat> I've been wrestling with this as I've been trying to put together some economic policy for the campaign. So like we, you know, we I agree with the progressive taxation. I agree. I think I also think that EITC um, credits and simplification and fully refundabilities are are generally good policy. Um, I, I talk about uh, instead of universal basic incomes, like targeted basic incomes for um, young people and people returning from incarceration, uh, places, places. Oh, we lost Avon. All right. Well, hopefully, Davon will be able to join back in a second. We're having some storms here, so there we go. Welcome back, Davon. Um, so, um, so yeah. So, uh, how do we balance these things that I think we we all or we both think are good policy um, with a sort of tax and fiscal policy that has to fund them? And and it's like I I. I also talk about, you know, adding additional funds uh, to the community repair and reinvestment uh, fund. But I, I think that the the thorny part is if we think if we think the reparations act is good policy, and 
and even uh, priority compared to those other things, but that those other things are also good policy and that like fixing the community college, um, you know, fixing the community college funding formula um, uh, as opposed to continuing to fund the private schools or, or things like that. You know, there's, there's other good policy out there um, that has to happen. So how do we balance a fiscal policy that funds a special fund uh, and a tax policy that funds a special fund uh, and the need to pay for some of these other things as well. And I think that that's the place where I've been stuck on the policy question. Yeah. Well, I, so I think I'll put it this way. I think we can agree on the progressive taxation pieces. Yeah. Right. And I think one of the things that would differentiate kind of a revolutionary Pan-African nationalist perspective from some of the more conservative approaches to reparations is that I think there are some folks that might question the move to do progressive taxation, right? So that's a place where, to me, I think we're on the same page and there isn't a whole lot of discussion to be had about that as a, at that aspect of it in terms of a, a policy. Where the question comes in is operationalizing the public investments. And so, so again, this means, for instance, because aside from the community repair and reinvestment fund, we take that out for a second. There's a question of how do we, and, and this goes beyond the, the policy proper, right? In some ways, because the question becomes, you know, what are, how do we understand the machinery that is needed to operationalize the policies in ways that won't be harmful? Another way of saying it is, I was, I was reading, um, some a compilation of Thomas Sankara's speeches. Um, former president of Burkina Faso, you know, led the revolution there. So, you know, socialists. And one of the things that he talks about is in, in terms of thinking about socialism, how to put it in practice. So in terms of like a, a food distribution network, like socialism isn't isn't merely an ideological commitment, right? It is a science to how do you organize and structure um, the society in such a way where it can do food distribution from that socialist perspective, right? And so that is that should be the case in every arena where we're talking about public dollars. So again, whether it's a so-called healthcare system, whether it's public education, and this is a place where I don't think there's enough thought given to the importance of, because I think it's easier to just say, progressive taxation, fund public programs, fund the public sector. Well, the public sector, and you, meant, you, you mentioned in the bio at the top, our writings around when Baltimore awakes, the human social service sector. There's a way that the human and social service sector is a conduit of the system of white supremacy, where people are profiteering off of the suffering of black people, where the services that are being rendered are rendered in ways that reproduce notions of inherent black inferiority and pathology, and actually facilitate a communal dependence on institutions outside of our community that do what I describe in a piece that I wrote called Cracker Democracy, the notion of disaster management, right? Where it's like you're funding social programs to merely manage disaster as a part of structuring programs in ways that help transform the community and its ability to fulfill its own needs. One example that I give that I think would be helpful to understand that conceptually is I remember during the uprising, I mean, not the uprising, during the pandemic, there was um, food shortages. And so you had a lot of food banks giving out food. 
Well, one of the things that we thought about during the pandemic is, you know, you have the Black Church Food Security Network, right? Heber Brown. What would it be like to, so, so what, what was happening was there were all these public investments in these private entities, you know, corporate entities, transnational corporations that were the basis for feeding people. What would it look like to say invest all those monies into an entity like the Black Church Food Security Network that connects black churches to black farmers to grow food? What would it look like to be able to build something where when disasters happen, that our community, black people, that we would be able to address our own food needs? But in a disaster, we were reliant on these transnational corporations where the food isn't healthy, right? Where the entities giving the food are entities external to the community. So it's that kind of charity framework that reinforces the dynamic that black people have with larger society. And so I'm saying all that. So again, the progressive taxation piece, I, I think we're all on the same page for the most part. It's a question though of when you're talking about making investments in the public sector and it's thornier, it's thornier to have to look at what are the ways the public sector perpetuates racism and white supremacy, because that's certainly a better alternative in some respects to the corporate sector and the kind of neoliberal way that public private private public partnerships are being put in place of the private sector. So, so there's certainly an understandable angst in terms of dealing with that, but the public sector gone unaddressed in terms of the way that it perpetuates racism and white supremacy, that's the place where in terms of policy, that's the place where there, there needs to be real engagement. Got you. And so like the Reparations Act puts billions of dollars into the Community Repair and Reinvestment Fund looking at the fiscal note, right? Like it puts a little bit more money into the general fund, but it puts billions of dollars into the Community Repair and Reinvestment Funds. And so um, I think, you know, we've talked a lot about those Community Repair and Reinvestment Funds as part of a strategy for reparations and as part of a means of democratic control um, for communities to be able to exert um control over how funds that are, are allocated to them are are spent. And and so can you dive a little bit more into the mechanics and the theory behind that and how you see it as a vehicle for starting to build that kind of sovereignty and, and community control that you talk about? So one of the things that I've learned in doing legislative advocacy is that you can't legislate community control, but you can legislate the establishment of mechanisms that allow an effectively organized community to exert its power. So for instance, I'll give a, an example of something unrelated that I think will help explain this. I remember, you know, doing a lot of work on police accountability that we've done. And, you know, one of the things we always say is, well, the community should have oversight over law enforcement. And so people would say, well, yeah, put in the bill that, you know, said body, the community controls law enforcement or has oversight. But the question was always, what entity is that? What entity constitutes community? Ultimately, somebody has to appoint someone. So what I understood was, was that there was always going to be politics and the question of how you establish what entities exercise power. And so what that led me to understand is that our best bet then is to make um, the, whether it's decision-making in terms of law enforcement or distribution of resources to, to have as transparent and open a process for the community to put pressure as the basis for facilitating community control. 
So that goes back to what I mentioned about the Community Repair and Reinvestment Fund, where each jurisdiction had to pass a law. So as opposed to giving it to the executive, because again, the way that most local legislatures work, there has to be a public hearing. It's public. There's a way for people to see the hearings, right? In ways where if it goes to the executive, there's no obligation for it to be public, right? Except for at a board of estimates meeting where decisions have pretty much already been made by the time you get there, right? And so having it go through the local legislature requires at least a level of transparency and public disclosure. You know, all these these hearings usually require a mandate that there's a public hearing where people can come and testify, that you can more able, you can impact a the electoral um, fate of a council person more than you can your executive. And so the idea, because a part of reparations isn't just the compensation for the assault on the humanity of people of African descent, but it's also about community control, right? So that revolutionary pan-African nationalist worldview, the piece around community control of these resources. And so for us, that provides us the greatest potential mechanism for the community to practice community control. One of the things, and I mentioned before about the importance of these vehicles for community investment, which again, I think for some people may be wonky and abstract, right? And it makes sense because, you know, when you think, if you work at a job and you get paid every two weeks, you don't think about the software that does your payroll, right? You don't think about the software that the bank uses to transfer your dollars. You know, we're using these devices. We don't think about the satellite that sends the messages that we don't think about where the Unless material from them. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Right. Right. That's, that, that's, that's when you think about it, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, and, and one of the phrase, one of the ways I describe, that's like civilizational machinery. That's like your very ability to navigate civil society are dependent on a bunch of things that we don't think about. And to your point, unless they don't happen. And so, so I mentioned that to say that when we talk about investment in public resources, it's kind of the same way where we don't, if, in, you're thinking about, for many people, you're thinking about, will I receive money? Will this organization receive money? That's, that's the kind of beginning and end where most people think about it. But there's so much more that goes into the distribution of resources that requires real intentionality. And so, so the reason why I'm um, to this question, talking more about this, the importance of vehicles for community investment is because one of the things that, in terms of the way the local ordinance that we worked on for Baltimore City, Baltimore City and pursuant to the legislative mandate that I described from the Community Repair and Reinvestment Fund, established the Baltimore Reinvestment and Reparations Commission, where each council person would get to nominate one person to serve on the commission, right? And so the idea here being that it provides, again, folks able to get access to the council person to pressure and to put someone on there that'll actually be reflective of the spirit of what you know reparations is about. But one of the conversations that we're in a position to have in terms of, you know, being in conversation with, you know, with folks who are thinking about being commissioners and with the council people, the conversation around what, what kinds of governance need to be in place in order for this to actually be pursuant to community control, right? What institutions are available or are necessary for the commission to be able to distribute resources in a way that would lend itself to community governance around the distribution of those resources. And, and that is an ongoing project. So there's no simple answer to that question, right? And that's right. something that people are, are constantly working on as it relates to how to steward public dollars. So and we're not starting from scratch, 
because there are other projects that LBS and many others have worked on to this end of thinking about how to build these vehicles in ways um, that have a functional community control structure to it. But it's, it's, it's extremely complicated. It's an ongoing project. And so the idea behind this fund is that it allows jurisdictions to wrestle with this, right? That we encourage the public to be engaged and to be critical, right? There, there'll be mm -hmm. folks that will be critical of what the commission decides. But and they'll be a lot more critical if billions of extra dollars are in it. Right, exactly. Right. right. And so, <laughs> so the, being in a position to then practice that governance and be able to engage those larger criticisms in a transparent way, I think is a part of the muscle that is needed for the community to be able to practice that power. Because I think too often, particularly for people of African descent, we have politically been rendered, again, primarily just recipients of resources. But when it comes to what it means to wield the power to distribute them, there's an entirely different set of considerations that are important. And so again, the hope is, is that this provides an opportunity for us to build that muscle of what it looks like to wield the power of distribution of resources as opposed to primarily just being concerned with being a recipient. So, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that helps to frame it. So let me go back to a couple of examples that I mentioned in progressive policy that I think uh, is generally agreeable. So if we wanted, if Baltimore City wanted uh, to take some of the funds that was put into the Community Re uh, Reinvestment and Repair Act and use it to have targeted basic income for young people and for people returning uh, from incarceration, um, then a democratic process could help to shape the money being directed in that way. Um, but the community has to have has to decide that's a priority in order for the money to be spent that way instead of the governor deciding that's a priority uh, that's because um, the community is more likely to understand how it should be implemented whereas the governor has his own pressures and things like that is that is that sort of how the thinking would go absolutely and, and one thing i'll add to that is is that you know there may when we think about developing the institutional capacity in the community to be able to participate more fully in the global economy. Some may say, well, instead of UBI, maybe we develop a worker co-op, right? Where folks, you know, share in the ownership of it mm -hmm. and they're, and they're helping to build up the muscle of governance over a cooperatively owned enterprise. Right. And the community may say that is something that we need that is more beneficial, right, to UBI. So yeah. so I'm saying so I'm saying that as an example that, that that could work. The community says that that's good, right? Then that works. But also challenge people to think about because there's some people who would put that idea out and say there's no way that, that wouldn't that would be a bad thing. And part right. of what I'm suggesting is the community needs to be fully engaged because the community may have something that for it is a better idea. Right. And it may be that it may be that in year one, it's basic income. But after that, it's a focus on co-op because the community right. is doing the budgeting. It, it is it is not it's not sort of participatory budgeting in the like way that is we all get together and come up with the people's budget. But it is sort of participatory budgeting in the sense that the lowest level of democratic influence is the people who are deciding how these funds get um, pushed out. And I have a lot as hard as it may be to convince my council person to do something, it's easier than the head of a foundation, the head of a corporation or the governor. Um, right. 
And, and so, um, you know, and I, like, taking another example, like if, if Baltimore County doesn't like the fact that community college dollars are getting cut three cents to the dollar, um, you know, now and forever, um, and, and their community decides that directing some of the money from the community repair and reinvestment fund toward the community college, they can do so. Um, That's right. And so, okay, so, so this makes sense for me. Um, and I have a good grasp of what it looks like. I think, even if it's difficult, I have a grasp of what it looks like in Prince George's County and Baltimore City uh, and Montgomery County, maybe in Howard County. But then I start to wonder, what does it look like in the other counties? So what does it look like for Black folks in Hagerstown or Cumberland or Frederick or Havre de Grasse or on the Eastern Shore? What is, how does that work where, um, you know, the Black communities there are... Um, have power, but compared to the jurisdiction in which they're in, it's a lot different than those sort of Central Maryland, D.C. and Baltimore area counties. And it's in, and that 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 question was a question we got from folks who saw themselves as like sympathetic to our effort, right? So that's a that's a very good question. And one and so I'm gonna go back to what I mentioned before around legislative community legislative community control, mm -hmm. and and the piece around what you what you said a moment ago, which is um, relying on the governor or foundation head or those folks for access to resources, right? Because because some folks would say having it at that level would then be able to um, undermine some of the more conservative remote areas where black people live, but don't have the level of political, um, the numbers politically they have in, you know, like central Maryland. So a couple things. One is, is that there are guardrails in the Community Repair and Reinvestment Fund that for us, we had in mind for this very situation. So for instance, it can't be used for any law enforcement um, kind of activities, what, right? Which for us wasn't really important because those are jurisdictions that I think would interpret this as something for them to do that. Second, um, they can't use it to supplant existing government agencies or programs Right. So they can't just use it to fatten up the budget. And that it has to be used to to address the harm done by cannabis prohibition policy. Right. Now, I'm going to use that to bridge into the second thing, because that's broad. Right. And, and there are people who have said, well, why not have something more specific? That's really broad. I think this is an instance where the if the community is properly organized, then the community can use litigation right against those jurisdictions if they believe the monies are being spent in ways that don't live up to legislative intent right and so that's one of the things that i would recommend right for folks that are in those more remote areas being organized enough to be able to impact what what is actually going to be put forward by that jurisdiction and again if that jurisdiction does something that is against what are in the guardrails then i would argue then the opportunity in partnering with folks you know ACLU, you know, LDF, you know, some of these larger entities that can help with the litigation to be able to sue those jurisdictions um, for not complying, right? And that being a mechanism. And and that's important because it, it for us, it maintains the balance of utilizing in jurisdictions where Black people have significant demographic numbers and can flex political muscle. It maintains the balance of that as a primary weapon while also those guardrails making it the opportunity 
than in areas where they're not the sufficient number. So there's still a mechanism that can be used in order to shape ultimately what the jurisdiction does. Right. And, and you know, like black folks on Harvard Grass still need to have more political power than they have right now because they're not. Uh, it's not as if they're in a great position and that community is incredibly politically strong and would get weaker as a result of this. And, and I think and I think the idea of having to network around the legal resources is, is a really useful one. It, but, you know, I, I think about this because like, when we're going back to what the policy difference is, right, like the policy uh, is taking is taking you know tax revenue and diverting it to a special fund and so i think that i can see why a lot of folks would say hold on wait a second like at least in the general fund we get something out of it um, mm -hmm. but in the special fund it's hard for you know it's, what do we do in cumberland right mm -hmm. and um and at the same time i also think that i also think that in frostburg and hager center and harvard aggress and all of these places there's significant damage that has been done beyond just the war on cannabis to the black communities that were there and were in place there and i think you know when i go to hagerstown i'm often surprised to hear about you know the the black cemetery that is in a part of town that is no longer um that is just no longer really has anybody living there in some ways you know and so i i think that this notion of creating the and building the muscle for exerting political strength is really important because i think that both the you know the idea that it's not easy to go convince your council person to fund the thing that you want to fund if they want to fund a different thing um, but it's probably the easiest person out of the government nonprofit, corporate sector that you can influence uh and this work is hard and is going to be hard, but it, it, at least this sounds like you have a mechanism that starts to figure out like how to exert that grassroots community controlled democratic power and build towards sovereignty. So I, I, right. th that makes a lot of sense. And I think like the description of how the fund works uh, makes sense. Do you see it? One, one last question about the fund. Right now, it is tailored to who uh, the to people who experienced harm from the war on, uh, on drugs. Um, do you see other harms getting opened up as the future policy mechanism? You know, like you mentioned redlining earlier, or you mentioned some of these things. Do you see some of those things becoming um, additional parts of the fund as it grows as a policy vehicle? So I think one of the things that for us was an innovation in terms of thinking about this as reparations policy is getting around the, the Supreme Court limitations around race-based language, right? Like using race-specific language and policy. So for us, the cannabis possession piece, the sociology on it is, is so stark as it relates to racial disparities that in many ways operates as an effective proxy, right? As a matter of policy in terms of how to distribute the resources. I actually think that and now now this goes back to kind of where we started around like the the inextricably inextricable link between race and class. And there's a way that some people would say that using class or using other socioeconomic indicators um, would be more responsive to the range of um, when you talk about race and class. Now, two things for that one is, is that for people who understand the, the linkage between the two, um, class doesn't explain and doesn't have the explanatory power to explain all forms of inequality, right? So 
so there's that. So anyone who would say just use socioeconomic indicators, you, you still miss a bunch, right? Mm -hmm. But the other thing is that the, um, that part of what we would, that I'm recommending is, is that looking to your point, looking at um, different indicators, different um, metrics of inequality that consider race. So cannabis for us was good because the nature of the enforcement of it was so much on racial lines, right? Also class, right? But the, I mean, you know, there are a variety of data points, you know, black to be arrested as a result of cannabis prohibition policy. Then what, I mean, so, and there are ways that even when you control for class, the disparity still exists. So there, so for us, like that particular data point was a particularly effective proxy because it, it, it isn't reducible just to socioeconomics. And so I would say that in terms of using other metrics, that, that it's important to do an analysis of those metrics and whether they effectively consider the inextricable link between the two, right? And ways that, you know, are representative of really getting at the disparity and, and, and overall, in terms of broader reparations policy, making sure that it directs resources in ways that address the specific harm done to mm -hmm. black people as a result of European domination of the world. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so it's like, yes, there is possible other, there is possible other data points in it, but they have to meet that criteria of having a particularly disparate impact on black people. Right. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, and I think it's, you know, it, it's one thing, cannabis money is good and it's helpful and it is a start, but it is not the kind of investment at scale um, right. that, you, you know, some of the, some of the progressive taxation pieces that you're talking about are, I mean, the, the billions and billions of dollars. I mean, I think what, I forget what the fiscal note said, but it was a lot like mm -hmm. $5 billion or something going mm -hmm. into that special fund um, is, is a lot. And, you know, I, I was, I was thinking as we were thinking about, like, as I was looking at the two policies, it, um, the, the reparations act does not do the corporate taxation, right. Or does it? I don't think so. Yeah. I think it's and billionaires so, tax, estate tax, capital gains, surcharge, income tax. And, and that got me to thinking about like other ways to address some of these other policy questions that I've had, right? Like, so if we think about like, how do we fund the public? How do we fund higher ed? How do we fund community colleges? Well, that's when we start talking about like taxing Hopkins's endowment, for example, and using that um, almost as a user fee on the billionaire corporations who are collecting all of these benefits from operating in Maryland and using that to fix the community college formula, right? And, you know, mm -hmm. um, or using closing the corporate tax loopholes as the means of you know, fixing the transit system, which they absolutely benefit from and things like that. Um, and, and not not getting in this fight and limiting our political imagination about who needs to be taxed, um, mm -hmm. right? Because there's a lot of people who need to pay more of their, their share. Um, and, you know, what I like about the way the Reparations Act does it is it is it carves out a chunk of that progressive taxation and it diverts it to this fund and it leaves other places um, right. where we need to have leaders who have the courage to go after those things, right? So we need to have 
we need to have a governor and a legislature who's going to go after Hopkins and try to take what they need instead of negotiating these pilots. Like, I agree the pilot renegotiation is a useful thing to do and the original pilot negotiation is a bad thing to do, but the whole concept of approaching it as if, like, they're equal negotiating partners and the city and the state need to ask Hopkins to pay more um, instead of using policy mechanisms to tax their endowment, right? Like they're sitting on billions and billions of dollars and an endowment and billions of dollars in property. And we need to get creative with our policy mechanisms in order to figure out how to go after that, especially with an organization that's not going to leave. They're not going to leave Baltimore. They have too much invested and they've taken too much out. So all of that to say, I was trying to wrestle with this as I was thinking about the reparations policy about like, if you're segmenting the progressive taxation off into the special fund, where do the other streams of revenue? Um, and, and that that's where I started to think like, well, CSX should pay for the damage that they've done to CSX should pay for the damage that they've done to Curtis Bay and to other places. Hopkins should pay for the damage they've done to the education system, you know, and it's like, that's not easy. Um, but, but it is the place where we need to look instead of, creating this scarcity competition um, for the revenue between community repair and reinvestment and the general fund, which, yeah. you know. And one, and one thing I'll say about that is I think that's a place, that's a place of conversation. One of the things that we expect, like as we, you know, push this policy in future years is to have conversations with other folks that are, that are interested in progressive taxation, to have a collective approach where, you know, what, what percentage of the resources go into the community repair and reinvestment fund and which ones, you know, recognizing that all those things are important. So for me, this is an example where reparations as a policy demand also contributes to a broader kind of progressive policy push for economic redistribution. Yep. 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 And and I think that makes total sense and that it is not reparations or economic redistribution. It is reparations as the vehicle to begin the process of economic redistribution and the redistribution of power, right? Like it's not right. just the redistribution of, of resource. It has to be redistribution of power, redistribution of, of opportunity and redistribution of resources. And it feels like the reparations conversation does that in a way. The re reparations conversation specifically around the community repair and reinvestment funds does that in a way which has that redistribution of power component to it, which has that community control component to it. And, and I really appreciate that aspect of it because there's a policy mechanism con connected to a history of struggle uh, and a larger philosophical orientation. And I think it, it makes a really nice conversation and a really nice package. Now we, you gotta get going pretty soon. Um, and so um, I think we've talked about this some, but I wanted to see if you wanted to go a little bit more uh, into the sort of philosophical question about how resources get divided. I, I think you've covered that pretty well. Um, but um, no, actually, let me let me do this because I know you got to get going and you got another another thing to talk about tonight. Um, anything you want to leave to close with um, as we finish out this conversation? Yeah, I would say that um, you know, um, want to thank you for this conversation because I think. The, the conversation around reparations has often, I think, in certain, certain progressive circles, been seen as inherently a wedge against larger um, questions around economic redistribution. And in some ways, there is some truth to the fact that I think reparations has been weaponized by 
you know, the kind of neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party against larger, you know, kind of the traditional progressive economic redistributive policies, right? There's a way that, rep that reparations um, and certain iterations of, you know, what folks call identity politics against a, again, a progressive agenda around progressive, progressive taxation. Um, and so my hope is that that there can be more conversations in progressive circles about the limitations of the way that I think economic redistribution is talked about and understood and that it lacks the conversation around sovereignty, economic self-determination, vehicles for community investment, that without that piece, then the model of economic redistribution that progressives are pursuing is one that re reifies the dynamic of white supremacy where black folks, again, are having to be dependent on institutions outside of our community to meet our needs. And that's one of the impacts of colonialism is that its subjects are dependent on it for its life-preserving institutions and needs. And so black people can only practice sovereignty when we exercise control over the life-preserving institutions. And that's not, that is something that is obscured from many of the standard progressive um, policies around economic redistribution. Policies that again are good policy, but incomplete when it comes to this question around racism and white supremacy. Yeah, and I think that that's why I wanted to have this conversation because I have a lot of conversations with people who um, think that who think that reparations is a cudgel to be used against sort of uh, redistributive policies and things like that. And they will say, well, everybody will be better if we give everybody healthcare and everybody will be better if we have a better education system. And I think that what they are doing in a lot of cases is trying to not have to hear the argument about black sovereignty and community control uh, because that threatens the liberal narrative upon which the American story is told. And so uh, I think they, they see the manifestation of white supremacy today in economics. And so they think if we can solve the economic problems and make people more equal, um, that that we will solve both economic and racial justice at the same time by simply rising all the boats. But, you know, I, I think that um, a phrase that I've heard on this, uh, on the rising all the boats question is like, if you don't have a boat, that rise doesn't hit the same, right? If and, you don't have a other, boat. And one other thing too is who owns the boats? Right. Who, right. It, it, like, do you have a boat and do you own the boat, right? And if you don't have or own a boat, that raising water feels like a flood and it feels like you're going to drown instead of feeling like it's a, an escape. And so I think that there's a lot of times when the reason, like I said, the reason I wanted to have this argument is because I think uh, this discussion, not this argument, um, is because I think there's a lot of white folks who are progressives who can't wrap their head around the question uh, that the system of whiteness has denied sovereignty and community control to black people as a sort of functional being and it is fun as it operates. And so, you know, the hard part of it, the, e the, the easy part of it is to answer the folks who have simplistic interpretations of this. The harder part of it is to dig into the nuance uh, to understand 
what needs to be added to folks that write things like the racial justice of tax policy and things like that. And I really appreciate that we could do the broad, but also the nuanced comparisons on this. So thank you very much, Davon. I appreciate it. I know you got to get going. We'll talk again very soon, but thank you for doing this tonight. It was a really, uh, really good conversation and it was exactly what I wanted to get into and I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to do it. All right. Thanks, Andy. Talk soon, man. All right. Talk to you. All right. Well, thank you to Davon and thank you to Dana, who is my wife and who does the production for this show. Uh, and thank you all for listening. This podcast is now available on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, Audible and Podbean. So subscribe on your on your favorite platform. In the next few weeks, we have some great shows lined up and we're adding a few more here and there as we can. Thank you again. And I'll talk to you soon.